right. Hello, everybody. My name is Bruce Montgomery, and this is my colleague, Tracy Priest. Hey, everybody. And we're with The Road to Retail. Tracy and I hope to offer tips, insights, ideas, and give examples of how small emerging challenger brands, dormant brands, can be successful out there on their journey from getting into retail or expanding their retail presence. Everything from determining if you're ready to grow, how to start, do you have confidence in your supply chain, proving it online, and then how to go about seeking retail distribution. Tracy? Yeah, so Bruce and I have been in uh, consumer packaged goods uh, for 30 years. And our experience is very broad, anywhere from you know uh, marketing, sales, trade marketing, mergers and acquisitions, uh, managing brokers, managing distributors, managing your uh, your marketing team. So we've got a lot of experience, and so we want to share that with you uh, uh, in our episodes. And today we've got uh, our first uh, founder that we're interviewing. We're so excited to have with us Chris Hunter from uh, Koya, and uh, we're just. Uh, Chris is going to give us some great insight today on um, just the the journey that he's been on with the uh, the Koya brand. So welcome, Chris. Thanks for joining us today. And uh, let's kick it off by just telling our audience uh, a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And um, uh, I guess where to start. So about myself, I grew up in in Northeast Ohio in a town called Youngstown, and I and I always start with that as I'm telling the story of the brand because it has relevance, um, and I'll come back to it. I I went to Ohio State, then moved to Chicago, like many people in the Midwest. Uh, I was the kid growing up that always kind of had this entrepreneurial bug, right? I would I'd color pictures and sell them in the neighborhood for a quarter or buy bulk candy and sell on the bus and uh, learning that I could like buy low, sell high and, and make some uh, money that I could use how I wanted in my family was like an amazing thing, right? And that evolved and, and, and continued throughout high school. Um, I uh, Maybe in some of the less glamorous ones, but I sold bootleg like sunglasses and, and watches at flea markets. I mean, I was just always doing uh, entrepreneurial kind of different things. I, when I went to college, I learned that you could get paid to um, to bring people out to bars and nightclubs. And as a college student, that sounds like an amazing career. And I chose to jump into that and, uh, and had a lot of fun, but maybe more importantly, met a lot of people. When I look back at my college experience, and I have three young sons now, so we think about like, how does college impact them? Do they go to college? They have to go to college, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I think, of course, we, I learned in college, but what I really took away was I learned how to interact with people. I learned how to build a network. I learned how to remember uh, you know, people, build those relationships because they come back to help you. And so in my example, as I was promoting, um, I had a friend who, uh, who was working for a, a, an alcohol distributor and they had a guy coming in town who was promoting a, uh, a, a vodka brand that was going to be sold mostly in like the party bars right the places that I promoted rather than the white tablecloth accounts that she called on and so she called me and she said hey can this guy's coming in town can you take them to a couple accounts you know the owners you work with them and I said yeah cool I wrote along and I learned how people pitch products in general but alcohol right and I learned like kind of how the three-tier system worked and whatever it may be great cool got his card stored it away 
Um, in the meantime, I started a magazine on college campus and, um, and you know, earned some uh, independent study credits for that. And we ended up folding that. And um, anyways, I, I moved to Chicago and I stubbornly refused to take a corporate job, which was what most of my friends were doing. And, and at one point I was really questioning that. I'm like, man, I'm broke. I've racked up like $8,000 in credit card bills. I have no job. I'm not meeting people like they are right through the corporate setting. I wasn't going to Christmas and holiday parties and stuff like they were. Um, but, uh, you know, I just wasn't willing to do the, the corporate thing. And um, at one point it became apparent, like, you got to get a job because you have no money. And so I took a job uh, doing hail damage claims, this storm chasing company. These guys were all making a lot of money. They're climbing on roofs, identifying hail damage and doing the work for it uh, or, or contracting the work out for it. And that all sounds great. Money was the driver there because I'm afraid of heights. So me climbing on roofs didn't really make much sense. But I tell you, man, you learn uh, about yourself when you are backed into a corner and I had to pay rent. So when I would go out on a Saturday and there was a contest, I would get every contract signed. I would win every contest because I needed to pay rent or I needed to eat, right? Anyways, uh, I knew that wasn't a long-term career. Circling back to what I learned in college, I started digging through all the business cards. I had kept every business card in a, in a big folder. And I stumbled across the card of that guy that uh, was pitching that vodka brand in, in uh, Ohio. And I realized he was in Chicago. And so I just started um, bombarding him with calls and emails every day. I need a job. I need a job. I need a job. And to this guy's credit, he recognized the tenacity and, and appreciated it because on the other side, there was this new uh, brand called Effin Vodka that was just emerging in Chicago. It was really popular. And I was doing the same thing to them. I got so aggressive that at one point I said, hey, guys, if I don't hear back from you, I'll assume an appointment on Monday. And I just showed up at their office with my resume. No, nobody met with me. I dropped it off and I left. Anyways, the point is I got the job selling vodka and that started my career in, in beverages. Um, and then I, shortly after I left and started my own company called Fusion Projects, we created the brand called Four Loco. We then transitioned into creating a brand called Not Your Father's Root Beer that we sold to Pabst. And then because of lifestyle change, uh, partnership issues, all of the above, I transitioned into the better for you space. And I can dig into that later. And that's where Koya came about. But going back to the very beginning of the story about Youngstown, the reason I always mention that is because when I create brands, um, I think it's my Youngstown upbringing is very relevant because a lot of times people create brands that make sense in LA or New York or these like A markets or sexy cities and but that might not translate to a Youngstown, Ohio, or pick whatever city you want, right? And so from day one, uh, specifically with Koya, we were very adamant that it needed to be appealing enough to work in New York and LA, Miami, whatever city you want to talk about, but also kind of um, intuitive enough that it made sense to the Youngstown, Ohio, or whatever you know market you want to pick consumer. So, so that was a long-winded uh, intro of me. Awesome. That's great. Young, Youngstown, Ohio, the, the home of Bernie Kozar, if I remember correctly, right? Bernie. Uh, my uncle went to school with Bernie, the hometown of Boom Boom Mancini, who my mom and aunt went to school with. Uh, a lot of great athletes, a lot of great coaches, uh, known for real tough mentality. And, um, and, and I do think it really like shaped a lot of people coming out of there. Yeah, translated to you for sure. Bruce? Yeah. Hey, Chris. So 
as let whether it's one of your earlier ones uh, or with Koya, what is the best advice you would give to either someone like you were a period of time ago thinking of an idea and going for it, or someone that right now might have the tiger by the tail? They've got a small business, it's getting some traction, they're trying to do 700 things. What's kind of the mental checklist you would give these folks? It's like, hey, man, I know you got 700 things, but these are the four. Yeah, um, well, I guess those are two different things. So I'll start with Tiger by the tail to your point in the four and the four things. I mean, for me, look, sales and revenue uh, generation cover a lot of sins, right? And so uh, without that, you know, that's the lifeblood of the company, um, you don't have a company. And so as much as we want, may want to all do other things, you know, you really got to focus on sales. And, and I, I just judged a, a beverage, um, it's called Bev Launch. It was at an under, uh, at an inner city school yesterday, this program where they were helping them learn to create beverages and hone entrepreneurial skills. And one of the things I was um, emphasizing is storytelling is powerful, right? And, and it makes uh, your story and your product memorable when you can tell a story that emotionally a customer can link to, and then it gives them ammunition to go promote your brand. So, so selling isn't just the hard sale, you know, push, it's the storytelling aspect of it. And so I would say, you know, don't forget how important the story is would be one, um, always prioritize sales. And that doesn't mean, um, a lesson for me with, with four as an example is that doesn't mean going wider and getting more distribution always. It means making sure wherever you are, you're successful, right? Um, I give you a story around that. When we first launched our first version of, of Four Loco, it was called Four. And we were selling to distributors. We were expanding to new distributors and we were happy because it showed revenue growth. What we quickly realized is that it wasn't pulling out of the retailer, which meant it wasn't pulling out of the distributor, which meant there were no repeat orders coming to us, right? And so we quickly changed and said, oh shit, we got a problem here. How do we fix it? And so we started focusing on that retail to consumer relationship and how do we get product to pool? And for us, ultimately that meant iterating and, and innovating and evolving our product, right? But had we not focused on that, we would have kept expanding into 50 states and found ourselves in a real, a real, uh, you know, difficult place. So I would say, you know, focus on sales through retail or through D to C, whatever, but to the end customer, I would focus on, you know, honing your storytelling, um, you know, really pay attention to uh, consumer feedback and tweaking your product based on that. And then maybe one of the more interesting things, it's a little bit of a twist is like, is just focus on the basics. I remember when we started Fusion, everyone told us, you need t-shirts, you need hats, you need blah, 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 blah. And fortunately, we had never raised money at that point, because if we did, we would have spent all our money on all this stuff that was irrelevant, right? Until the product market fit existed, none of that mattered. Um, and I would say the same thing with, you know, I'm just kind of going deeper on the same points, but I would say the same thing with with Koya, I mean, when we were fortunate enough to get the nod to go national with, with uh, Whole Foods, that was our first retailer. And sometimes people go like, oh, great, game over. I'm national in Whole Foods. That's where the work starts, right? You now have this opportunity. And we had to make sure that that product was successful there because 
if it wasn't, there was no next retailer, right? Exactly. So, so okay, Chris, one, one follow-up question here, although I, from your great answer, I think you already covered it, but again, speaking to these smaller brands and entrepreneurs, how much of the success with, let's say, Koya was because you guys had a plan and you stuck to it versus you had a plan and like 10 minutes after the ink was dried, you had to just improvise and go to the line of scrimmage and call an audible. So how much is having a plan versus continuously being flexible key in your mind? Yeah, I've had a journey with that question myself. So initially when we when we started with Fusion, I was like, what's the point of a business plan? This makes no sense. Who cares? Like we're just going to figure shit out anyways, right? Koya was a great example of why it's important because you need to spend the time to think through all these like strategies, the game plan, what you're going to do, when you're going to do it. And then what you need to know, in my opinion, is the minute that is inked and dried, it's wrong. So you're going to go and something different is going to happen. You're going to have to call an audible, but there is value in creating the plan. And so for us with Koya, the example of that would be, we had this very pragmatic strategy. We'll go in natural and whole foods and we'll spend a year and we'll spend our, fo our time, focus and money building the brand in natural. And then in year two, maybe we'll go to specialty, right? And then and do the same thing. And then in year three, we'll go to conventional and because our theory was we were building brands for the natural consumer, but we knew that the conventional consumer was catching up in terms of what mattered to them. Well, uh, and Tracy can speak to this better than anybody because he was part of it. What happened is we got going in, in Whole Foods and maybe three months later, Wegmans comes knocking and Wegmans like, hey, we're going to take you. Well, that blew up our plan. It wasn't a natural, although it's very close to very high end specialty retail, it's a specialty retailer. How do you say no to that? And we said Wegmans was going to support us in a way that they had this very progressive buyer that was going to cut out two thirds of her set because she realized there were redundancies between Naked, Boathouse and Odwalla, which took up that whole section. She said, I'm going to pick one. I'm going to fill two thirds of this set with emerging brands like you guys. And we couldn't say no. We said, OK, great. We put together a plan. We went after it and we quickly became from a dollars per TDP standpoint, the number one brand in that space or neck and neck with naked, which is a you know well-established legacy brand. So that happened time and time again. The next example of that was our third major retailer was this very conventional retailer called Giant Eagle in the Midwest. And look, that was my hometown retailer growing up. That's where we shopped. And at that time, if my memory served correct, if there was like kind of a better for you section, it was this big, right? So the idea that we were going in with a plant-based protein drink that was five bucks a bottle, we were $4.99 at that time, in Youngstown, Ohio, going back to the origin of, this, uh, of my story, I was like, uh, here we go. We found the place that it doesn't work, right? But again, how do you say no? Bill Moses from Kavita was one of our investors, and, and he had a good relationship with that retailer, and they said yes. And so we went into that retailer and again, made sure we supported it and we, we were successful. Within six months, they took us out of a DSD and brought us into their warehouse direct. So this blew up our whole original plan, but kind of in the best way possible because now, again, going back to storytelling, the story we could tell is like, look, we have proof points in natural, specialty and conventional. And while we have a lot of room to fill in from a distribution standpoint, we know it works. And so, so I think you have to really spend the time to create the plan. There's value in getting clarity and then know that it's wrong and adapt, you know, the yeah. next minute. 
being TP. Yeah. So, Chris, one thing I wanted to highlight that I love what you said, and we preach this a lot to our audience on Road to Retail is it's not about sell in, it's about sell through. Yeah. And uh, so I just love that. So, share with our audience a little bit about um, like what mistakes you would tell our, our audience of small emerging brands to avoid. What's the biggest thing that you learned? Like, gosh, I wish we wouldn't have done that. What would you, what would you share, share with our, our audience? Yeah. I'm a, I'm a, that's, I'm a difficult person to ask that question to because I believe in business and in life. Like if I'm happy with where I am, it's hard to say I shouldn't have done something I did. Right. Or be, uh, you know, uh, be regretful about the past. But if there were things that I would say to consider for, you know, uh, new entrepreneurs or people with a tiger by the tail, as you put it, um, you know, one thing we did is we were an innovative company. We love innovation. We have a million ideas. Um, and early on, that can be very valuable um, and exciting as you're trying to find market fit, right? In this middle ground, I think it can start to be a distraction where you know you have items that are the leaders that are high velocity. And if you introduce too much new stuff, it can start to like confuse your team. What's my priority, right? Um, or if I only get five items and we have 20, which ones am I supposed to put on the shelf? It can confuse the retailers. It can confuse the success story because if I have a line that launches in there and it doesn't work, do they now think our line or our whole product or portfolio doesn't work? And then I think then again, as you come out the other side of that, and I don't know where these delineation points are, but it can become very valuable again. So, um, you know, because the big companies usually aren't that great at innovation. That's why they uh, partner with these uh, emerging companies like ourselves. But um, uh, I would say don't get too distracted. You know, I, I would also say don't be so rigid that you don't evolve because going back to my first company, I had always heard, oh, you need to establish your core product before you come out with line extensions or other flavors in that case. And I was so stuck on that, that had I had my partners not been flexible and pushed me on it, we would have sunk because the product didn't have a market fit, right? Now in Koya, it was very different. Koya had market fit from day one, some of the highest velocities out. So I think that's kind of something to be aware of and that could, um, could cause turbulence, could burn some money, could, you know, but on the flip side could also turn out to be a, a benefit. I would say think through your strategy in terms of how and where you roll out. Like we ended up fortunately in a way going national with Whole Foods day one. And at that time that wasn't common, but that also put us in a place where we had to support the brand nationally. It wasn't really a sustainable model, right? So we had to raise money, more money earlier. There's another brand that I was thinking that I'm thinking about that took the opposite approach. They went just in Southern California and they babied that brand and it did really well. And then they went and told the story of, hey, here's what we did here, but, and this is what we can expect as we roll out. It was a little bit more sustainable model. I can't say which one's right or wrong, but um, in retrospect, I might've been a little more intentional on which way we were going. Um, you were ready, you know, tell us a little bit, how'd you know you were ready and you mentioned that you went to Whole Foods first. So is that, you know, tell us a little bit about that. How'd you know Koya was ready for, for primetime retail? 
So um, this is kind of backstory of the company and of the brand. So there was a, what I call Coil 1.0. It was called Raw Nature 5. It was the first version of the product. And I had two uh, partners and co-founders in that. And, and they were, they had actually created that brand, right? And I had invested in that brand. And I saw it in Chicago and it was in about 15 stores, but it was a nice smattering of like different retail. So it was in the one Whole Foods on Kingsbury and Lincoln Park. It was in this gym called East Bank Club. It was in Plum Market. Like it was a nice mix of different retail locations, but the name was bad. The bottle, it was like a squatty kind of ugly looking bottle and label. Um, the, the nutritionals weren't what they were, what they said on the bottle, right? But it was early, early stage, like proof of concept stuff. And fortunately it worked even with all those things against it. And again, keep in mind, this is six years ago in Chicago, a traditional meat and potatoes town. This wasn't LA where everybody would do plant-based or, you know, whatever, just yeah. generalizing. And so there was some good proof of concept. And then there were some good people around the brand. There were a, a, a quite a few industry um, veterans who had invested in the same round I had. There was one of the key brokers in the space who was uh, bullish on the concept and, and the product. But ultimately the company was on the verge of insolvency. And so I came in as a co-founder to help pivot the brand, help fund it both myself and by raising money. And we introduced then Koya. So the reason that I knew that Koya would succeed in Whole Foods or was very bullish on that idea is because we had some, some proof of it in a market um, around the success of it with all those things against it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Bruce? Chris, you know, how do you thread the needle of still being a DTC brand plus being in retailers? Is that... Uh, does, as you get bigger, is that a bit more a delicate conversation or is it just like, look, man, that's how we started. We're glad to work with you, but that's that's part of who we are. So for us, we didn't start D2C. We have a D2C component now. Right. And it's a little bit different for us. Like we've gone through the roller coaster of, oh, we're glad we're not D2C. Oh, we wish we were D2C. Oh, we're glad we're not D2C again as the world has changed over the past six years. But we have kind of the double whammy for, for uh, D2C against us. We're a beverage, so we're heavy, we're liquids, and then we're refrigerated. And so shipping heavy refrigerated products is not a sustainable model from a margin perspective. But we do it. We do, we do it for very specific reasons, and this is how we explain it, is that despite the fact that we're in almost 18,000 doors across the country, we're not everywhere. And so we do want to have availability to anyone who wants to try Koya, that's one reason. The second reason is that we started to employ this limited time offer product collab strategy. It's really kind of a, a marketing opportunity. So an example of that is we did a partnership with this gentleman named Thomas DeLauer, who's kind of the, you know, the poster child for keto lifestyle. And, you know, he has his own health journeys on the cover of men's health. And, and he, co-developed a line of Koya Keto and we launched it D2C only to his 3 million YouTube followers. We're doing the same type of thing with Chris Paul coming up here next month. We're doing a, his favorite flavor is cinnamon horchata. We're doing a CP3 cinnamon horchata specific label through walmart.com, but that's all powered by our, the back end of our D2C, meaning the warehouse and logistics of it. 
And so we do it because we have opportunities like that, that are kind of revenue generating marketing opportunities as I call them. And then the third reason that we do it is we do have some super users, people that will order two cases, you know, 24 bottles at a time. And what we've learned is from personal experience and from talking to our consumers is if you have 12 bottles in your, in your fridge, you might drink one or two a day. If you have to go to the store to get one, you might drink one or two a week, right? So we're happy to load people up. And so those, those um, super users are actually uh, buying through our DC as well. So that's how we balance it because it's a very specific purpose. And it's, it's sometimes difficult with our team because you know, people have expertise in that field. They want to use it. They want to grow. They have some, um, you know, vested interest in what they've done for the company and growing that. So we have to really, we struggle with like, hey, this serves a specific purpose. And from budget allocation, it needs to represent that. But retail is really our focus. And how we bridge that gap for today's consumer is we focus on kind of existing routes to delivery markets. So Instacart, Amazon Fresh, GoPuff, you know, Seven Now, things like that, that provide that same experience where I can order digitally, get it delivered. It's just we don't facilitate it on the back end. Yeah, no, that's interesting. One of the things, Chris, that Tracy and I talk about is that for e-com to really work for you, you have to have a, a good price to weight ratio, preferably light and have a, a higher price. And then you threw the other curveball in there of refrigerated. So, uh, your explanation yeah. makes sense, but it also makes sense why that really couldn't be the, the core focus. So let's talk about another thing where you've uh, obviously have a lot of experience and enjoyed some success. When you, how do you go about deciding, especially earlier on, because now you're, you're sort of a, a made man and you've been successful. So people would probably um, in, invest with you without a lot of uh, uh, drama. It's never easy, but how do you determine when you're, it's the right time to go try to raise money? And then what do you look for in an investor? So part of uh, my, my intention around Koya was not only to bring a life to a uh, brand to life that I was aligned with, but it was also to do some things that I hadn't done. And one of the things I hadn't done in my past life with Fusion was raise money. We raised a very little bit amount of money, but my partner who came from maybe an AMRO kind of took that and let it. And so to be quite honest with you, I had a little bit of insecurity around my financial acumen and ability to do it. And so I was like, all right, I got to go out and do it, right? Um, at the beginning, uh, um, I think it was a little bit of, you know, there's lessons learned along the way. At the beginning, it was a little bit of like, oh, do you have money? Oh, great, then let's talk and you should invest in Koya, right? And, and we have great investors, many of which have rode with us for a long time. I mean, six years in this world is, is kind of a long time. Um, but looking back, if I were giving any advice, it would be realized, especially in today's world, there's a lot of money out there. And so really try to figure out what partners kind of bring to the table as their value add. And also understand, I had an investor actually say this to me on the other side. They're like, look, when you're doing the kind of like, diligence and kind of early stage relationship building, um, you need to realize that whoever that person is in that process is who that person is. Like if it's a difficult, you know, combative process, don't think suddenly when they're an investor, it's going to be this smooth, supportive, you know, situation. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's really good because we can get lost in the idea of like, I just need to close this, this um, investment. 
Uh, so I would say coming from, despite the fact that I had success in alcohol, coming into non-alcohol, I don't think I got many like, uh, you know, I don't think I got a bunch of like, oh, this is a made men signals. Like, I don't think I got like, oh, of course we'll invest in you because you've, you've done it before. So it, uh, it was a bit of starting from the beginning. Networking is something that comes natural to me. I like to know a lot of people. I like to talk to a lot of people. And I think that's a key element. I mean, I've had some some of our investors recently is we're doing this strategic bridge round. I've said, you know, is there anyone else I should talk to? And they're like, at this point, you know, everyone we know. And I'm like that. I like that. I like hearing that. Right. Awesome. But it is, but it can be a distraction from running the company. I'm very fortunate. I have a, an amazing team, especially in the leadership. We have a president who's more than capable, capable of running, you know, companies much larger than ours. Uh, great CMO experience from Vitamin Water and, and Brownie Brittle, our, our SVP of sales is from Calafia. So there's a team that literally can run this without me. And so that frees me up to do some of this stuff. Otherwise, it could be a distraction to the detriment of the company. Um, and, and I'll kind of talk about our strategy has been let's raise enough to get us through the next year, maybe two each time, because we really were focused on minimizing dilution. I don't know if that's right or wrong. If it were at the detriment of the company, I might have raised or tried to raise more money so that I had a longer runway and I could go back to, you know, focusing on the business. So, so, so Chris, just a quick follow up there. Do you, when you have these initial meetings over, over time, have you learned, are these meetings more like six pages and a discussion to get the feel of them. So you determine whether this is a potential investor that like eats their own children, or is it immediately the 80 page deck with five years pro forma and EBITDA down to the penny? You know, um, when people asked for that 80 page deck with EBITDA down to the penny five years ago, when we were, when we had like one year business, it was a red flag. I was like, there's, we know it's wrong anyways. Like I could see trying to project next year, maybe the year after at best. But if you want me to like look into a crystal ball and predict the future, you and I both know it's wrong. You're just wasting my time, right? So I would start uh, more um, in those days by realizing one, they're investing in me, not the, not the product. If I had total confidence and if they, we got along and they liked my mentality, they're more likely to invest realizing that it's so early that any model is, is, very inaccurate anyways i will say as we progressed and as we're doing a series b now it's very much about the data and the model and the, you know and it's a, a bit different so i think it's an evolution uh that someone raising money needs to realize which part they're in good point. great so, tracy anything there no i think uh one last question then we'll wrap it up and that is chris what's your greatest success in your career hmm Greatest success in my career. What are you most proud of? Gosh, I'm a pr I'm proud of a lot, but I, um, give me I, three. Give me two or three. Okay, I'll give you two. Uh, one, uh, going back to the original thing that that we survived at, at Fusion Projects, being sued by the FDA, the FTC, the TTB, eighteen attorney generals, a smear campaign on me. We survived that, right? And we righted the company, and it still exists today. Um, at Koya. Uh, I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that we kind of stuck to our guns in when we first started, everyone said, everyone being investors, how are you going to do a refrigerated beverage? You need to figure out a way to get this shelf stable. That's what it needs to be, right? 
And we were very adamant that the consumer has decided refrigerated and perimeter shopping are what they prefer because that signifies better for you. And so we, we didn't give in to that pressure and we stuck to our guns and I think it's, it's paid off. So I could probably list 10 things, but those are two top. Of so let me, let me get, let me just give one follow-up to Tracy's question there, Chris. So as these uh, entrepreneurs or, or managers, owners of these smaller emerging brands. So you, you talked about what you're most proud of. What's the, what's the one piece of advice you'd give them? So if, if you're in the huddle going to the line of scrimmage, what do you tell them? You know, is it hang in there? Is it be flexible? What, what are your words? Uh, if it's somebody at the early stage of their journey, it's like, no, it's a ride. I mean, me and Mike, the president of our company, talk about this all the time. It is a roller coaster, man. One day we're high five and everything is, is, you know, humming and we can, we can start, you know, making these crazy projections and the next day COVID hits, right? Or whatever, right? So it's just this, know that it's a roller coaster. It's that meme that we've all seen, right? People think entrepreneur life is like this and then it's really like this, you know, just know that that is that is really true. All right. Well, Tracy, I think we're ready for the big finish. Absolutely. So Chris, um, if people want to uh, reach out to you, um, how do they do that? Uh, they can look me up on LinkedIn, which is Christopher Hunter, or on uh, Instagram, which is underscore Christopher underscore Hunter. Um, those are the best two ways. Awesome. Chris, thanks so much for joining us today. It was so insightful. Hopefully, our I know our audience really is going to enjoy this. And um, the big finish is you can reach us also on Road to Retail on our LinkedIn page or also on our YouTube channel, also under Road to Retail. So thanks again for joining us, everybody, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Good luck out there.